This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. What I loved about track is just the, the purity of the sport, where uh, so much of what you put into it in terms of on the track and practice, in the weight room, right. um, you had to put in the work and in in, in, in efforts to sort of get the returns on the actual sort of uh, on the oval and if you didn't do that it showed and it was a very clear outcome with regards to whether someone else was better than you or not um so part of it was just that preparation but also sort of that that mental preparedness totally. uh, at the time to really show up and um when you won the feeling was great and when you lost right. there's nothing no one to blame but yourself google glass i think um you know i don't know if it helped sort of the whole sort no. of industry for AR because it definitely sort of left people wanting a lot more. Yeah. And the um, and I think they tried to go too far beyond sort of where they should from like a fashion sort of aesthetic appeal. Yeah. Like yeah. there's nothing cool about wearing Google Glass. Um, Don't be a glass hole. Yes, exactly. Um, so, um, but the fact that they tried to force that with collaborations with, you know, fashion brands and all that was like, why is Google Glass on the runway? That does not belong there. The center is the customer. They're the ones who are paying for everything. I just saw this as, oh my God, this is like my chance. Quarter of a million dollars, it was almost surreal. You can't just cut out one person in the supply chain in order to solve the problem. Those are the kind of people you want. You respect them, their integrity, their intelligence, their ability, their can-do attitude, hard work. Welcome to the final installment of the Fall 2016 UC Santa Barbara Distinguished Speaker Series. I'm John Greathouse. You can follow me on Twitter, at John Greathouse. We have tonight with us an esteemed investor, an entrepreneur, serially successful entrepreneur, great family man, and a great friend. We have Kobe Fuller with us here tonight. Kobe recently joined Upfront Ventures in, uh, last summer. Uh, June of this year, after having previously worked at Excel Partners, one of the top venture firms in Silicon Valley. While at Excel, Kobe spearheaded a number of investments, uh, including campaign monitor, user testing, ad roll, emergent VR, and Invoca, which is a company that I'm also on the board of. However, that's not the first time Kobe and I have worked together. I'll tell you about that in a moment. Before Excel, Kobe was an entrepreneur. So what, what we saw with Brad Feld and Mark Suster and some of the other uh, venture capitalists that we've had come into this program, it's a common trend now for an investor to also have operational experience as an entrepreneur. Kobe got his kind of in the middle of his career. We're going to talk a little bit about that transition. Before, um, so before Excel, he was the chief marketing officer at Revolve. If Revolve sounds familiar to you, it's not surprising. It's one of the leading e-commerce fashion brands on the internet. And Kobe got there at a point where he was able to drive tremendous revenue growth through his marketing efforts. While he was there, he learned about the leading marketing technologies, or MarTech solutions, and then he took that back into his efforts um, at Excel. So before he went to Revolve, uh, or sorry, (laughs) before he went to Revolve, he was at OpenView Venture Partners and Insight Venture Partners, two other venture firms. And this is while Kobe was on his way up in his career, really learning the craft of venture capital. 
even though he was on the front end of his career, he found some great investments along the way, including Exact Target, which was acquired by Salesforce for $2.5 billion, um, and Instructure, which is now a New York Stock Exchange public company. So pretty good for somebody the, um, on, the, on the front end of their investing career. While at Excel, Kobe authored Growthverse. And Growthverse is an interesting tool. It's a visualization tool for marketing executives, and it helps them um, navigate that world of MarTech, of marketing technologies. Uh, very innovative and still in, in use today. So in addition to the MarTech background that Kobe brings to investing, he also has deep knowledge of virtual reality and augmented reality. I'm hoping that we can talk a little bit about that tonight. And he was an early personal investor in Oculus Rift, and as you guys know, Oculus Rift was purchased by Facebook for about $2 billion. Pretty good investment. So I mentioned that I had a chance to work with Kobe before Invoca. I was actually an independent board of director um, of a very small startup. Kobe's firm, um, up, um, OpenView Ventures, had invested, and Kobe represented that investment. Um, and I think it's instructive for young people sitting here in the audience and, and anyone who's watching this to understand that business really is built around friendships. It's okay to make friendships in business. I think we watch these movies and it all seems to be about making money and, and grinding people down and transactions and, and, and friends don't really seem to come into the mix very, very often in the movies. It, I think it, it does for successful people in real life. Kobe and I hit it off right away. We were simpatico. It was clear that we were like-minded in lots of ways. Uh, even though Kobe was in Boston, and I didn't, I didn't really see him that much except for these board meetings, when he came out of Revolve, we had a chance to work together. I had a marketing company, um, and we had a chance to um, you know, sort of stay in communications while he was in L.A. And then when he went to Excel, because we had that prior relationship, it was easy for me to talk to him about Invoca. And it was easy for me to explain why I thought Invoca might be a good investment. Uh, and now Kobe's back in L.A. at Upfront and uh, a firm that I've already done a couple other deals with. So that's about a 10-year journey. And that's not uncommon in business. You, know, you find people um, in your orbit that you want to keep in your orbit, and you just stay in touch with them. You just make an effort. And I'm so happy that, um, that I did and that Kobe did as well. So simply put, Kobe is an accomplished investor. He's a talented entrepreneur. He's proven to be a steadfast friend to me, uh, and he is a devoted family man. I'm proud to call him a friend, and I'm proud to bring him up on this stage. Let's welcome him. Thanks for that intro. I don't know if that's to pay for that or something. No. Um, I, I mean, it's, I do get to interview a lot of really yeah. fun people, and sometimes I know them, sometimes I don't. Yeah. Not too many times do I really get to bring a friend up here and as accomplished as you are. Well, I hate to tell you, it's, it's about the money. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the check is in the mail. <laughs> it is. No, I'll just share with you real quick. I had, a, um, uh, I, I had a, a rough patch recently, and Kobe sends me this text, and it was a lot of people reached out to me. It was wonderful to, to, to see how many friends I have. But Kobe sent me a text, and I'm going to paraphrase it, but it was awesome. He's like, dude, he's like, you're a good dude having a bad day. That was like one of the most impactful texts I got. It was fantastic. So be a friend. Like when, you ever, when one of your friends is having a bad day or hitting a rough patch, that means a lot to people. It meant a lot when you did yeah. it. Thank you. Yeah. And I didn't tear up when I said that. So, <laughs> so I, I don't actually know your, your backstory. I don't yeah. know. I don't, sometimes I do with, with people I interview, but I don't know like, what Kobe was growing up. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, were you, were you that kid that was hustling and you were the entrepreneur, or did you have a more conventional childhood? Yeah, no, I think it's probably a combination of the two. So I grew up like lots of kids in my generation, 
you know, I had a paper route. That's mm-hmm. kind of how I, I made some money. Um, my parents gave me an allowance. It was a couple bucks a week. Yep. And um, I, you know, I made that work. And, you know, things I would do though, to stretch that money, uh, I was, you know, sometimes pretty creative. Um, I do remember when, like, the Sega Genesis came out. I was like, I really want the Sega Genesis. But to my dad. I was yep. like, he bought it for me. He's like, no, bug off. I'm not going to, you know, spend a couple hundred bucks for something that um, I don't know if you should deserve. Right. So um, what I used to do is I used to go to... Um, you know, my local convenience store, buy comic books. Mm-hmm. And um, lots of times I'd buy, like, you know, Spider-Man. It'd be, like, the number one issue. But it wouldn't be, like, the Amazing Spider-Man. It'd be, like, the Fantastic Spider-Man. And I used to go to, like, my, my friends at school. Be like, hey, it's, like, Amazing Spider- Spider-Man number one. Except right. it's, like, it's the, the, new, the new series. And right. marketed as something, uh, you know... It wasn't deceptive, but, you know, it was, it was marketing. Um, and, I, and I used to throw in, like, baseball cards and basketball cards, too, to have it be, like, a nice package deal. Yep. And, you were bundling. Um, I was bundling. bundling I, was, I was bundling. Wow. And, uh, and I was able to find one kid that um, he, he liked my, my bundles, um, <laughs> and um, I liked his money, so I would uh, constantly sort of extract that. And that was how actually I was able to, um, to, to buy my Sega Genesis um, until he moved, and then it was uh, tough days. But anyway, um, but, no, I, I was actually kind of... Um, you know, not hustling really aggressively, but doing creative things like that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I'd say where I did sort of focus on making money uh, growing up, I got into um, computers um, pretty early. My dad worked for um, for digital equipment, uh, which ultimately turned to Compaq, ultimately turned to HP. And he brought home a computer when I was, um, I don't know, like 10 or 11. And I used to try to play games on it because that's the only thing I thought would be interesting right. to do on my sure. computer. And then at some point, I found the games I would try to play on it wouldn't work anymore because it would be too, you know, they're just too processor sort of um, intensive to actually, you know, running on some 8088 or right, um, right, 286 right. dating myself. <laughs> and uh, so I was to try and upgrade the computers myself. Um, I tried motherboards. But then my father um, saw sort of the, uh, the passion I had around this and saw it was something potentially to foster. Mm. So he would give me um, you know, some resources to you know, buy computers and buy parts and upgrade them. And that's how I really kind of learned the basics of computer hardware, software. And I leveraged um, that to you know, do IT support for my local public works department. Oh, wow. And, um, and how I old actually, were you at that point? Uh, so that was uh, like 7th like and 8th grade and through, uh, through high school. And then ultimately, sort of that um, that IT background, I did. You realize yeah. that most seventh graders are not doing IT support for their public works department, right? <laughs> it was something that was frankly easy to me. It was like, well, funny half the times, like something's gonna work. It's just like I'm just gonna press like reset, and that like frankly, surprisingly, fixes most problems right, even right, today. Right. Um, but people don't know that. But anyway, that was kind of what I did uh, growing up. I think that's very entrepreneurial. I think that you you had something, you had your eyes on a goal. In this case, a Sega. Instead of whining about it or trying to get the money from your parents you yeah. said okay fine i'm gonna go get the money somewhere else and you got it by delivering value and you kind of joked about it but you know you found some value that you could create yeah. that, that anyone else could have done that same kind of bundling but but you did it yeah i think it's very and it showed the marketer in the early <laughs> on did, did you so when you were an undergrad we have a lot of um, undergrads in the room here tonight did you have your sights on investing at that point, or what was your path? Like, what did you think when you were 21, 22? What did you think yeah. you'd be talking about at this point? In your yeah, career? definitely. Well, potentially this, actually. So uh, I got into wanting to be a venture capitalist out of having to, to raise money. So uh, it was during the dot-com boom, 99, 2000. Um, I was at Harvard. I actually was on the track team there. Spent a lot of my time in athletics. And one of my teammates 
who was actually also on the Jamaican Junior National Soccer Team, came up with an idea around connecting players with recruiters. Mm. And uh, we, he was able to, some of, some of his network, raise a couple million in angel capital. And we created this overall sort of just kind of recruiting website, which blossomed into being a sort of a soccer portal. I don't even like soccer at all, but <laughs> wow. it was uh, an interesting idea to, um, you know, I thought to take to market. So we ramped it up to a point where we had about 20 employees and we were the number two traffic soccer site online. Wow. We could have you know, sold the business at some point, uh, you know, a, a big sort of you know, internet player for $15 million, but we're like, no, literally, like, um, my friend, um, he's like, it'll be worth billions. Like, he was a Jamaican kid, had a crazy wild accent, and um, we should have sold, but we didn't. <laughs> and, um, and then it was, I still remember through the process, because we were trying to raise uh, venture fund funding. And, and what era was this? This was 99-2000s, right before, like, literally right before yeah. everything just kind right. of collapsed. We had right. no revenue model. We may have sold a soccer ball to my, my, my buddy's like, <laughs> brother, um, but somehow it was worth billions, yep. uh, like everything was at the time. So um, we were trying to raise capital, and I still remember the VCs would, that would you know, come into the office We'd be on our best behavior, clean up the office, and yep. and really sort of try to punch. act like an adult. Yeah, act like an adult. Try to put on a show, and then um, then everything collapsed, and like we had nothing. But I was like, like who was that guy? Why was he so special? Like I kind of I kind of want to look at you know doing yep. that job, but um, but partly more because he was sitting at this vantage point where he was able to really look at multiple businesses and have a lens around sort of what actually was a good. Um, uh, product market to sort of invest behind and a good right. team that he sort of wanted to back. So my thought was if I actually was able to be on that side of the table, it could be an interesting strategy around what it means to actually build great, a great business. Um, so I actually thought it was potentially a path towards educating myself around being a better entrepreneur mm-hmm. uh, until I realized it's just ultimately the long-term path that I feel like is, is what I want to do for you know, right. the rest of my professional yeah. career. So it's a path unto itself. Yeah. And I've seen you in board meetings. I think, I think effective investors are, are frustrated teachers at heart. Yeah. And, you know, here I am. I teach at university. And I found that that's what I enjoyed about investing the most was – was not teaching, but, but, but collaborating with entrepreneurs yes. and helping them solve problems yes. and not telling them what to do yes. or not saying, well, here's, here's what I saw before, you should do that. Yeah. But, but really investigating and, and sharing insights and then work, helping them work through the answer. Yeah, no, so exactly. Giving them the answer. Yeah, it's exactly that. Um, what's my, so, I, so I did, uh, as a uh, rising senior, I still remember I, I, at the time I wrote like, physical letters to all the Boston VCs trying to find like, oh, yeah. a way to get uh, just uh, an interview and like... Maybe got two responses. One was like, "Wait until you have some, you know, bank experience," um, yeah. and then one was just like, "I don't know why I responded back." There was like, "No," <laughs> so I was just like, "Okay, thanks no way." Yeah, uh, and, and so it was. Um, but it was something I knew I ultimately did want to yeah. do eventually in my career. And back then, you the, the route was pretty clear, right? You went to an Ivy League, preferably Ivy League business school. You spent some time on Wall Street, and then you might become an event, uh, venture capitalist. Yes. Very few entrepreneurs were venture capitalists yeah. back then. I'm glad that model has changed. So I want to add on to uh, actually take one of the students' questions. Somebody asked, um, when you were at Harvard, you studied Spanish. Yeah. Did you ever use your Spanish? Have you ever used your Spanish? Has it helped you? Uh I'll be honest. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 uh, How do you say no in Spanish? Oh, there you go. <laughs> no. Uh, I, it's, uh, it's, it's, I mean, just based on where I've spent my time and where I've invested, 
Um, you know, it, it hasn't been something that's been sort of, right. you know, frankly, uh, a, a, a valued asset. Um, uh, maybe there's sort of discrete instances where um, it, it was helpful, um, but it's, it's hard to point uh, professionally where it was a differentiator versus me. Personally, it's been super helpful in terms right. of just you know, traveling the world. Totally. Um, so I think um, for me, as I think about sort of being able to expose myself to other different cultures and actually be able to um, thrust myself firsthand in that environment and actually speak the, um, the local language, I think it was um, definitely very impactful for my life, which I feel like those life experiences um, indirectly impacted how we're formed as human oh, beings. Absolutely. So uh, I'd say it was probably an indirect benefit. It, it opens anything. up a world that you're just oblivious to yes. if, you're, if, if you're one language. I mean, I don't speak French very well, but I did a lot of business in France at one point. And, and I found that just having that fundamental understanding opened up the world for totally. me as opposed to just kind of not, you know, asking, what do they say about everything? <laughs> yeah. you, just, you get it through such a tight filter that way. Um, I'm going to get the first student question in a minute, but I have one more. You mentioned that you were an elite athlete at Harvard. Um, there's a lot. There's, I think there's a lot of um, similarities between getting to that level as an athlete and being as a very successful entrepreneur. Yeah. Were there any specific lessons that you felt like you took off the track field or that you felt kind of found yourself? Maybe co- what coaches said to you? Or- yeah, I'd say and one reason why I really enjoyed track and why I continued to compete um, Post collegiate up until I was thirty, until I actually. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I, mean, I thought you were a friend. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, joking. Um, I actually slightly tore the labral in my hip, so I had to, I had to rehab through it. But I couldn't I couldn't oh, compete wow. anymore. But um, for me, what I loved about track is just the the purity of the sport, where uh, so much of what you put into it in terms of on the track and practice in the weight room, right. um, you had to put in the work and in, 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 in efforts to sort of get the returns on the actual sort of uh, on the oval. And if you didn't do that, it showed. And it was a very clear outcome with regards to whether someone else was better than you or not. Um, so part of it was just that preparation, but also sort of that, that mental preparedness totally. uh, at the time to really show up. And um, when you won, the feeling was great. And when you lost, right. there's nothing, no one to blame but yourself. And for me, I feel like it's so much just of, of business and life in general. Yep. So much of what you, um, you have to do to sort of achieve success is directly correlated into what you put into it. If you put in um, 50%, you will get 50% out of it. Um, and I feel like that just overall training and then discipline that instilled in me is something that I carry apart, you know, just you know, all facets of, um, of my life, to be mm-hmm. quite frank. Yeah, I think that all-in aspect of startups um, I mean, you have great balance, and I hope we have time before we're done here to talk about your work-life balance yeah. now that you have a family. Yeah. But sometimes in those early days, there's not a lot of balance. Yeah. It's life and death. It's survival. It's not yeah. life and death, but it's survival yeah. of your entity. And if you're not all in, your competitors might be, and you're probably not going to make it. Totally. And, and I feel like for me also with track, there's moments where I felt like there's no way I could run any faster. Mm. And it's not until... I got smacked around on the track where right. I was like, that guy's not going to beat me ever again. Right. And I put in that effort, and then it's like, wow, how did my time drop from like this level to that level? Yep. And there's always is that extra um, bit of effort you could put in um, with sort of you know, focused energy, because you can't just sort of put effort un- in an untargeted manner and think you're going to get results. So there's intelligence with regards to effort. If you do it correctly, um, like you will see results. Well, I remember we were in dinner one night, and you were telling me about one of your... So competition can come from a variety of places. It often comes from inside your own team. And you were telling me about one of your 
uh, teammates yeah. who was faster than you. I mean, yeah. he was faster, right? Yeah. Maybe not every day, but he was faster. No, he was faster every day. <laughs> no, I mean, and he that, was... And that, that upped your game. Totally. And I think that's important for young people. Like, get involved. I mean, there's a saying, if you're the best player in your jazz ensemble, it's time to get in a new jazz ensemble. Like, you don't want to be the most proficient. You don't want to be the best because it means you're probably not learning as much. Exactly. It. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. I think surrounding yourself with excellence and surrounding yourself with folks that push you will get the best out of yourself, whereas if you don't do that, um, it's easy to be complacent and settle for mediocrity. Yep. And, um, and yeah, you're right. Um, you know, he was a, an Olympic athlete. Uh, he was, like, number two in, in the world for under 18 uh, and went on to win UK 200. And when he you know, showed up on the track, you know, I thought I was the, you know, the, 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 the fastest guy on the team at the right. point. And then right. I knew he was on, coming on to the squad, and, and it made me have to sort of pick up my game. And honestly... It was uh, an, an amazing sort of um, just, you know, transformational experience in terms of just having that level of excellence exposed right. to you. Right. And it's that rooting for your teammate and being happy oh, when great. they win, yeah. but also wanting to, to, to do better. Exactly. And you see that a lot of st- healthy startups, you'll see that competition. Yeah. Let's take the first um, student's question. All right. Well, thanks for coming out tonight, Kobe. Uh, my question is, when you invest, your primary motivator for investing in a company is it a desire to see that company succeed and or an interest in the technology that company's harboring? Or is it simply a judgment to whether or not that company can uh, repay your loan? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, part of it is, you know, if when making an investment, if I don't feel like I'm going to be able to actually get even sort of like a modest return on my investment, like I, I shouldn't even be sort of like considering it. So um, that's just almost like a check the box. But for me, what excites me, frankly, is partnering with founders that are passionate about a given sort of product market and are, are, are just super driven and will honestly die trying to sort of achieve that goal. And also where I feel like I can be a true partner to them, um, be able to roll up my sleeves and actually help them operationally in some facet of the business where I can be of help. And when I find opportunities like that, for me, that's what excites me the most because it's about being able to partner with those companies where you know they are truly friends. I treat my portfolio company CEOs as friends so that ultimately when there is a successful outcome, we're all high-fiving together. And the derivative benefit from all this is financial returns for you know, our investors, our LPs, um, the actual company itself, and for, for me personally. But for me, I'm in it for really trying to build something great and do that with folks that are actually super excited to actually you know, build something great and phenomenal. Uh, and, I, and, and for me, it's like being able to do that then makes a job not feel like work. Because if I'm trying to actually just make money, there's, other, there's lots of ways to make money. But building companies with folks you really want to spend time with and actually truly are your friends, then that's when it's, it's not a job. It's, it's just natural life. And when you get that call at whatever hour in the night because something's going wrong, like, you want to help your friend. Uh, versus if it's not your friend, you'd be like, ah, oh, do I really care about, like, protecting my investment? Like, it's a different psychology. Does that make sense? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And, I, and, and that, without going into details, I got a call from Kobe one time when I was at dinner about a company we were involved with, and <laughs> things weren't good. And, you know, it, it really helped to have friends around the table yeah. and not, you know, a bunch of um, typical totally. VCs, right? Yes. Yeah, so, um, so it really does make a difference. I, went, I wrote an article one time, 
where I did some research, and there's more professional baseball players than there are venture capitalists, which is ridiculous, right? It's a really small industry. Yes. And, you, and, and, and you can even slice it smaller if you talk about well, who's actively writing checks. But let's just say even anyone that's really calling themselves a VC, it's, there's more baseball players. So I want to get back to how did you get into VC? You got the no letter. You got the go get experience letter. How did you end up at probably Insight was your first? Yeah, so frankly what happened, so uh, at the time I was um, you know, first year uh, banker at uh, Fleet Boston Financial. Uh, I was doing, um, you know, essentially helping do le- leverage finance at capital markets sort of uh, activity. And we were working on uh, the leverage, a leverage buyout of a canned seafood company. And, that sounds exciting. Yeah, really exciting. Uh, so I was out in L.A., and we're touring the factory, and I'm seeing this albacore come in from Puerto Rico, and I'm wearing, like, a hairnet. I have no hair. I'm like, what the hell am I doing? And, um, and then so I realized, like, I really need to sort of try to take a more proactive stand around sort of, you know, finding where I, you know, following my passion. Right. Um, and one of my buddies actually took a job at Insight Venture Partners straight out of school because they do have a, a, a program where they recruit um, you know, individuals straight out of undergrad. At the time, I didn't want to move to New York where mm-hmm. Insight's located because mm-hmm. I was still living in Boston where my now wife was finishing up school. But it was an experience that he described as something that was perfect and something I wanted to do. So I ultimately uh, reached out to my friend named Namdi and uh, he, you know, introduced me to his main lead partner, Scott Maxwell. Yep. And uh, who, who I, spent, I worked with. Yeah. Um, and we uh, we hit it off, and uh, I was lucky enough to have a slot carved out um, for me to move down to New York and join Insight nice. as a, as an analyst, um, basically banging the phones, cold calling. Like, right. Literally, it's a boiler room. It's like there's a phone, there's a computer. <laughs> it sounds glamorous. Make it rain deals. I mean, no, it right. was, it's not glamorous at all. It's a very hard job. So, or, so, so when you're in the front end of your uh, venture career, you're often, um, now they call them associates, but they should be called scouts. Yeah. And you're basically calling a lot of startups, cold calling, trying to get the CEO on the phone, and just trying to learn as much as you can about their business because you're basically doing research for your partners. And Kobe picked up the phone and, and somehow ended up with this company called Exact Target, which later grew into a $2.5 billion company. How did that happen? Yeah, honestly, I mean, it felt honestly like shooting fish in a barrel. Like, my first investment wasn't even Exact Target. My first investment was an infrastructure uh, ah. software company based in Australia that we made five times our money in a year. Mm. Uh, I was like, wow, that's easy. And then, Let's do that again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the second company was Exact Target. Mm. And it was. Um, you should have stopped there. I should have stopped. Yeah, it's just the first time. Uh, it spawned out of honestly. It was a dive that you know Scott and I were pursuing as it relates to looking for companies within a category um, now called SaaS, the time called mm-hmm. ASP. ASP. Yeah. And looking through different sort of you know, you know verticals uh, that where ASP software could uh, you know really be sort of you know exciting for um, mm-hmm. you know you know for a player to to, to arrive. And we, through our research, we happened on um, email marketing and exact target amongst uh, a, a number of other companies within email marketing. So, you know, part and that of, was in a volatile time, right? Can spam yeah. and all of that stuff. Can- yes, ex- exactly. So, you know, we so part of at least um, the the venture role is making sure you talk to every company within an in- industry sort of you know vertical to make sure you understand like how this one company stacks up against the others. Yep. Spoke with exact target. Uh, and it was one, it was tapping into all the, the trends that were going out there on at the time with regards to protecting 
uh, email marketers from violating legislation like hand spam. Yep. It was run by what um, I considered and still consider a phenomenal entrepreneur in Scott Dorsey. Um, and it was based in both based in Indianapolis, and it was wow. it was what something you know people called it a, a email blaster. Excuse me. Um, so it wasn't obvious at all, right. but it was one where, by peeling back the onion, looking at the economics of the business, how it was run, overall sort of efficiency of, of how they're going to market with their, uh, their sales and marketing model, and Scott as a leader and the team he surrounded um, himself with, it, um, it, it, it turned from being sort of like a very not obvious investment to a no-brainer. Mm. And yeah, we did it, and, and it was one where... You know, a number of us kind of had to put our neck on the line. It was you know, myself and um, uh, an individual at Insight still named Nikitas, who uh, we kind of you know proved out the thesis. And uh, it's interesting. So we did the deal. Scott Maxwell took the board. First board meeting, um, you know, post investment, first quarter, uh, they missed their numbers. Oh, <laughs> so, nice. so, so they were like, "Yeah, like we told, like this is a ter- terrible investment." But then after that, it was just kind of you know. The rest was history. It yep. just worked out really well. That's awesome. And then yeah. now you know Brett Queener, who kind of helped buy that company, yeah. right? Yeah, so no Brett, yeah. It's a small world. It's a very small world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, we'll take um, the next student's question. So how do you think that the marketing field will change within the next 10 years? And what, would you, what skills would, would you recommend that college students now learn in order to succeed within that field? Yeah, so it's a good question. So I don't think a lot of people look at marketing like it's dramatically changed over the years. So that's correct and also not correct. So the tactics by which you can go about executing the overall practice of marketing have changed. That's only because there's been an evolution or called explosion of different sort of channels by which consumers can be messaged to and interface with brands. But the overall sort of discipline of marketing has, has never sort of changed. It's being able to very clearly understand your target market, what product you should sell to your target market, how to actually message that product to the market in a way that will drive an emotional connection that will give them the um, propensity to take the next sort of level of action, which should be some sort of conversion event, which should be walking into a store uh, or you know, now clicking on a Facebook ad and then being informed enough to then want to actually take out their own pocketbook and actually make a transaction. So lots of people I feel like today are being distracted by all these marketing tools and forget the overall sort of this fundamental discipline of marketing as a overall sort of human exercise. And I feel like really understanding that part of marketing is like step one which, frankly, I'm surprised so many marketers today that are in charge of really, really, really large budgets just totally missed the mark on that. But um, So I'd say like spend time trying to understand that through whatever sort of coursework that's here and kind of research and books on your own. But then I'd say number two, for me, the easiest thing to kind of learn some of this stuff is actually firsthand just sort of trying it out. So it's not hard to just like start, um, start a business, like create a very simple just like standard website, like selling maybe just one product, and see how it is to institute Google Analytics, create sort of Google AdWords campaigns, go on Facebook and actually do some custom audience targeting campaign, create um, an email marketing strategy, signing up for campaign monitor, try to figure out sort of how to 
piece together all the individual profiles of your customer through using a tool like you know, Segment. And then you'll realize as you're sort of peeling back the onion trying to solve all these problems around just fundamentally going about the standard practice of what is marketing, that you'll educate yourself on the basic tools um, that you know, modern digital marketers are using today. And I'd say that um, that sort of practical sort of just firsthand knowledge is something that Frankly, you can teach yourself, and some of the best marketers I feel like I've run into today, that's what, that's what they've done. Um, so that's probably um, some of the biggest recommendations I could give. It's funny, when you think about MarTech, it's, I think everything's a pendulum, right? So all these cool tools come out, um, tools that didn't exist four or five years ago, and now it swings over here, and people start thinking that could solve strategy yeah. and start solving fundamental problems. It's like, no, you yeah. still need... So you've used the term Crayola marketer. Yeah. I'd love to hear kind of how... How do you? I know you don't mean that in a pejorative way. How do you? How do you think about Crayola marketers and how they fit in with with all of these new tools? Yeah. So Crayola marketers, um, I mean, essentially, it's just sort of um, the term is more sort of being you know, focusing on like creative. So someone that's focused on the, the art of marketing. Right. So right. maybe Crayola, unless you're big into crayons, and I haven't seen much. Maybe there's really good crayon <laughs> art. Um, but um, you know. Crayola marketing is really just focusing on someone that's focused just, just on the creative. But there needs to be someone that's also focused on the quant, who has the calculator right, out actually right. see, looking at the, sort of the ones and zeros and actually what's sort of um, you know, driving for performance. So what, what I envision sort of the next-gen marketer is someone that actually strikes the appropriate balance of exactly. both of those. And frankly, it's just... It's very hard to find um, those folks that actually can left brain, um, right left brain, balance left brain, it's right tough. brain. It's tough, but it's um, as organizations that are trying to build up marketing teams. You, I think you really need someone like that at top. Sometimes it may not even be the CMO because it's hard to even find CMOs that right. do this. Uh, it may be the CEO in certain cases, and it's finding though the right balance um, within a marketing team where some people may be dominant creative, dominant quant, but you need to educate. Um, each side on the value of both. Yeah, so, exactly. Like at Revolve, for instance, some of what I did is, you know, first thing I did when I kind of started building my team, you know, I had everyone running on Agile Scrum. They didn't know it was Agile Scrum. Uh, I didn't call it that. Right. But we were basically running, you know, s- you know standard sort of, you know, Scrum, some Scrum practices, which is just, overall. Just quickly explain. Yeah, so sc- uh, Scrum um, is essentially just a, a process by which uh, it's originated mostly out of sort of development. Um, going through and instead of doing a method where you're scoping out a project and uh, planning out sort of a long series of steps in which to sort of achieve a goal that could be sort of called like six months down the road, you're actually taking these bite-sized sort of increments um, and uh, focusing on at each sort of increment, which they call, um, you know, sprints, delivering an actual finished product. And the manner by which you go about uh, delivering that finished product at the end of a sprint is through um, a lot of basic sort of philosophical approaches towards team building, which is kind of open honesty, trust, um, open communication, and you're doing this through a series of daily stand-ups, yep. which you talk uh, each day about sort of um, what you're working on today, what you actually completed from yesterday, 
and uh, everyone on the team has visibility into what everyone else is doing. So it really exposes what everyone on the team is actually um, taking on as a whole yep. and allows there to be a lot of cross-pollination in terms of practices and discipline. So when I instituted this within my marketing team, you know, I had my, um, you know, head, you know, my head of social media and creative you know, really kind of gradually soaking in some of the, um, the, the big data quant stuff that my, my data scientist was doing. Mm-hmm. And so even though she wasn't manning sort of the tools on understanding the analytics of her customer, she at least could appreciate a little bit what was going on exactly. and wasn't feel like she was living in her silo. Right. And what also helped, um, that helped do, is create a more of a notion of just a feeling of just team camaraderie and alignment. And, um, and overall, people just wanted to continually sort of put their, their all into it because mm-hmm. they knew kind of what the end goal was and they had visibility right. into what was going on, including me. I had all my sort of activities, as we talked about the team, sort of get plastered up there. So they, know, they knew exactly what I was doing, and it wasn't like, oh, Kobe, the CMO, is right, off right, doing like right. CMO stuff, and right, like he's right. not going to tell us that, what he's doing. And you know, it was, uh, in, it, for me, it's a very, very powerful tool. Um, and folks that actually adopt you know, agile scrum principles outside of traditional sort of development um, organizations, I feel like are some of the, the, the best run um, teams. Well, I think you were doing that early on. I yeah. mean, it's, it's getting more common now, but yeah. back then it was still not being done in dev teams. Yeah. You know, that yeah. Was, it was still being adopted by dev teams. Yeah. So that's admirable that you were pulling it into uh, <laughs> Made my job marketing. easier. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, you brought that to the company. That was yeah. something that just wasn't a skill they had. Yeah. So I want to I want to go back to another one of your investments, um, Oculus Rift. I yep. think everyone in here understands what that company is all about. Two billion dollars from Facebook. What drove that investment? And then I want to dovetail a, a, a student's question: um, Where do you see VR and AR going? Yep. And the distinctions between the two that aren't always clear to people. But let's start with how you know what drove you to make that investment. Yeah, what drove me to make the investment is actually. Um, um, Cutting short a process of actually joining the company, so uh, uh, so, um, so so they were trying to recruit you. Yeah, so I know I know well I know um, Brendan Arib, um the CEO. Actually, I've, I've known him for a bit. So uh, we met back while I was at OpenView, where um, we almost invested in his first company, Scaleform. Well, um, what did they do? Scaleform was a 2D middleware SDK. So okay. all sort of uh, the 2D sort of um, heads-up display screens, menus within sort of uh, most AAA titles, and also any titles, were powered by Scaleform's middleware. Did, um, did that company succeed? Yeah. So uh, we didn't invest, but Autodesk ultimately acquired them for $60 million bucks around nice. there. Um, so yeah, so, Brent, so Oculus is like actually Brendan's third win. So he went from, um, from um, Scaleform to Gaikai, and then after Gaikai, which sold to Sony, then... Uh, and it's a time that he was in L.A., I was in L.A. for Revolve. Um, we were talking about whether there's some ways in which we could work together. And uh, frankly, at the time, I thought Oculus was just a science project. It was, right, you know, right. it's, it's still, it still made they're you heavy, they're... It still made you sick, and it yeah, was like right. super pixelated. Right. But it was one where, um, in my gut, it felt like something super transformational for society. And mm-hmm. I've uh, always been very excited about sort of the promise of VR um, you know, since a kid, you know, Playing with that you know, 8088 computer yeah. sure. and being able to sort of you want to get immersed. I want to be in the scene. Yeah, yeah. I want to be flying the Wing Commander right. games and stuff. So um, it was um, it was one where like you know, ultimately you know, didn't join, but it was it was an obvious um, investment. Um, Do you where, regret not joining? Uh, no, I don't have any regrets. Would you, would you be in the marketing? Yeah, yeah. Um, so. Um, I regret not piling my entire bank account. Every dime you had. That's my only regret <laughs> right, um, right. that I have. But that's a good regret to have. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's much better than the opposite it's one. Still, it's still a regret. <laughs> um, but um, so, I, fundamentally, I believe VR is going to um, 
and AR is going to change. So to change describe the, the two and the, the difference between the two. Yeah, so VR essentially is, you know, putting on some sort of headset or at some point, you know, be glasses that totally blocks out your, you know, environment around you. So you're, in, you're immersed in an entirely different world. AR is, you know, still in the form factor of some sort of headset or potentially glasses where it's putting a visual overlay on top of the world around you. So you're very so like much... Google Glass, well, if that's even still... A, yeah, no, is that around anymore? Yeah, I, I have no idea. It, it, it may be... What but, it wanted to be. Yeah, but I wouldn't consider... Like, Google Glass, I think, um, you know, I don't know if it helped sort of the whole sort no. of industry for AR because it definitely sort of left people wanting a lot more. Yeah. And the um, and I think they tried to go too far beyond sort of where they should from, like, a fashion sort of aesthetic appeal. Yeah, like, yeah. there's nothing cool about wearing Google Glass. Um, Don't be a glass hole. Yes, exactly. Um, so, um, but the fact that they tried to force that with collaborations with, you know, fashion brands and all that was like, why is Google Glass on the runway? That does not belong there. Like, people should be ashamed of actually right, those campaigns. Right. So Revolve didn't do a deal with them? <laughs> um, so, um, so that's the two differences. Where, um, I, if, you know, AR fundamentally, I believe, will be... Um, far bigger than VR because there'll be a point where AR will be in the form factor of you know, contact lenses mm-hmm. where you're walking around and being able to actually have sort of, um, you know, at any point in time, given however you want to customize information flow to you, being able to sort of see relevant data, you know, at the point of sort of, um, of um, importance uh, to actually help you know, inform decisions um, at any point. So it could be you know, you're in a business setting and being able to pull up real-time someone's LinkedIn information because computer right. vision shows right, that right. this is John Greathouse and tap into an API from LinkedIn and yep. say all the data points around you. It's going to be really freaky around sort of like what people can do with this, but it literally is like Terminator. Um, right. And that's, that's going to happen at some point. VR, I'd say, is more of a, a near-term uh, exciting um, category. Just where, gaming. Well, it's going to be more beyond gaming. So I think gaming's the obvious um, category. Right. Where I'm excited is more in the area of experience sharing. So teaching. Uh, teaching is amazing. So teaching VR education, I think, is going to be phenomenal. So thinking about. Um, you know, if you're in high school learning chemistry for the first time, mm. instead of being sort of in a classic textbook or even some of these 2D, I don't even know how they're teaching chemistry these days, but being able PowerPoint. to... Yeah, probably PowerPoint, whatever. <laughs> um, being able to actually take sort of elements, molecules, and actually firsthand sort of manipulate them and see how they kind of react with one another, how wow. you can create compounds and stuff, you can do that with VR. Uh, and that's something where having sort of that level of immersion uh, should be able to allow... Um, um, students um, a higher level of absorption of data. Mm-hmm. So I think sort of the impact on education is amazing. I think interpersonal communication and experience sharing. So something I think is really amazing is being able to like capture a moment of like your your, your child's first steps in VR, mm-hmm. and then instead of like a photo or, or a video where it's like oh like I this is a photo a video of my son Jackson walking for the first time. How about you know ten years from now I strap on my VR headset and actually I'm in that room watching Jackson, again, walk wow. for the first time. Or what's even crazier, when Jackson's 10 years old, actually him in the room looking at himself walk for the first time. Yeah. Uh, so those types of experiences, I think, are going to be transformative in terms of how people just um, sort of you know, um, catalog memories and also shared experiences with one another. That's awesome. How many people in here have put on some VR headset? Was it mostly the phone, where you put the phone up? Yeah. I mean, that's a good first step, right? I think it'll get better. Yeah. No, there's, um, yeah, there's, especially with, um, between the Rift Vive and PSVR, um, they're getting to a price point where it's not too crazy. 
Um, but mobile VR soon will be start sort of you know, narrowing the gap relative to those higher end experiences. And you know, some of the, some stuff I've seen lately where it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Nice. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. We'll take the next student's question. In startup marketing and how emotion drives customer action, you argue that the most admired brands structure their businesses around meaningful emotion-driven marketing material that doesn't really feel uh, like marketing. So what what are some of your favorite examples of companies that use this tactic in their advertisements, and how does the story they tell entice customers? Yeah, that's a a good question. Um, Well, I just think some of the brands I admire the most like for instance i mean i i think nike as a brand is totally exceptional uh you know it's it's, it's crazy where so many people when they think of like oh i'm gonna buy a running shoe or a basketball shoe they just like oh i'm just gonna buy nike uh, and part of it's because they do an amazing job at um just aligning with some of the the best athletes the best sort of influences influencers uh that actually have a um you know a, some sort of connection to um their, their brand or their apparel. So I think part of how they've been able to go around sort of um, influencer rela- um, relations, influencer um, management, and also to sponsorships has done a phenomenal job in conjunction with just great design principles. Um, and you just see it everywhere. It's kind of, you know, they've done a good job at sort of creating um, what many feel is like a great authentic brand around sort of performance that goes beyond performance but into lifestyle. Um, so I love Nike. Um, I also feel like... Um, the Revolve uh, team since I've left have expanded even further on some of the stuff I've done where they're leveraging um, fashion influencers, bloggers in such a creative way around how they're putting so in their social media where they just have events they put on constantly where, frankly, it's, um, it, it, it's, it's marketing, but also it's just like them throwing parties with their friends, and it's truly authentic. And you look at sort of like this crew of like what looks like just like amazing, just like aspirational sort of just like fashion uh, um, influencers having fun and they have their clothes seamlessly integrated into the experience where um, you know you as um, you know a female like look at sort of that dress like that's kind of interesting I also want to you know follow that influencer and now follow Revolve and it's this organic experience that uh, I think in regards to how they've leveraged influences overall um, and done it in a very cost effective manner that um, I don't know if I can go into is just um, it's pretty phenomenal. I want to sort of switch gears a little bit. Um, I've always been impressed with what Upfront has done um, in growing a very diverse team. I've known Mark now for probably eight, eight or nine years, Mark Suster, who's one of the driving forces of Upfront. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how that team, I know you're a relatively new member, but you've known totally. the team for a while. Yeah. Um, how, how, what are some of the, the, the initiatives that have worked to grow this diverse team and what maybe some that didn't work as well? Yeah, so I don't know what in terms of what didn't work. But I feel like what did work is that um, I feel like part of just the team overall is a they, they, there's just an overall notion, ethos of just sort of non-bias and acceptance. Yeah. And when you have that level of openness, I think it sort of just changes your filter with regards to who could be part of the team. Mm-hmm. And I think... Part of what um, Mark, Kara, Greg, um, Eve, Hame, and myself, you know, how we sort of think about and how we sort of plan our investments and plan who we want to bring in the firm is being able to sort of bring in other like-minded individuals like that. Mm-hmm. And um, it sort of just naturally sort of, you know, 
breeds itself. And, and I don't know if all organizations sort of um, um, consciously or subconsciously sort of behave that way. Right. But I think part of it is just trying to align yourself with folks that actually have the same sort of fundamental principles um, and sort of you know, guideposts in life. And I think it just naturally plays itself out. I'm not sure if, um, you know, Mark hired me because I was an African-American. I don't think I don't, that's not what happened. I think no. Mark hired me because... Um, well, he worked with you for years. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, so I think that's kind of why um, it's just sort of, you know, we just naturally got along really well. We're friends. And, uh, and I naturally also, but was with Mark, I was friends with everyone else. Right, um, right. And, um, and it sort of just kind of this natural snowball effect. Yeah, I think it's... I think you're right. I think diversity breeds diversity. It's just the more diverse your team exactly. gets, the more your diverse your team gets. Yeah, exactly. It's just sort of, it just sort of, I think, as you said, it's more organic, it's more natural. But I think the problem is with organizations that are crippled because they have no diversity, um, that can become an issue because then no diversity can breed, uh, subconsciously, no diversity. Yep. Um, and that's where... Um, or it can breed this very... Very self-conscious need for diversity, exactly. and then, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. then you're optimizing on the wrong, exactly, yes, on the wrong parameters. Yes, so, as you said, bring in talented, like-minded people, and then diversity. Um, if you're open-minded, will take care of itself. Um, I, but it's, I, I mean, uh, say it like pretty simple. Like, yes, we'll have it, but no, it, there's it's obviously not, no, it's, it's, not easy. it's a very complex uh, um, problem and conversation that um, I, I frankly don't think uh, I, there's not a silver bullet for. There's no. multiple ways of fast, um, sort of tackling it. I, and I think certain organizations of certain sizes, like they should have diversity initiatives, diversity programs, and right. tackle them the right way. Right. Uh, because they, I think you have to be proactive about yes, it. Yes, because there, there are because there are definitely problems. There definitely are biases within yeah. some of how. I didn't want to insinuate. Right. Oh, it'll just take care of itself. Yeah, no, I think no, no. when you have yeah. the right mindset and yes. you start to grow that diverse team, yes. you don't have to. You don't have to sort of struggle with. Oh, you know, we need more diversity. Yeah. I, so I have it, Troy Carter. Um, I've interviewed Troy Carter as well, and I've seen you on a panel with him. And I loved one thing he said is, um, and I'm going to. Apologies, Troy. I'm not going to quote you directly, but he said something to the effect of, um, "When I was growing up, it was called prejudice. Now it's called unconscious bias." <laughs> He's like, you know, it's 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 it has the same effect, yes. right? If you're if whether you're conscious or unconscious of it, if you're shutting out a, a certain group of people, it's still, the same still effect, prejudice, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a prejudice. Now, I think it's good that we're acknowledging that, and we and everyone does have unconscious bias, and we have to address yes. what ours is, like yes. what your individual is, or yes. you're never going to overcome it. Yes. Um, but it's just good business. I mean, I, I, I've seen what you guys have done with some, um, you know, some of the uh, Hispanic founders. I mean, it's just good business yeah, to go, yeah. to go out into the world and look at the world as, um, you know, one big opportunity, irrespective of of what the founder looks like or what their background is. Yeah. For for me, just like I, I and I naturally seek out diverse perspectives because for me the a diverse like if you don't have diversity, then like like then you have this sort of just like what like just homogeneity where like that's that's scary especially as you're building whether it be a portfolio you're looking for interesting ideas reflects sort of a diverse population because not everyone's the same individual everyone's complex so many different natures so if you're not seeking out diversity um, then I think you're not sort of being in touch with regards to just humanity it's just for me it's just sort of like a, a logical sort of just you know, fast of life. Do you feel like it bleeds into your startups? Because I've been in board meetings where we've, we've, I wouldn't say chastised, but we've reminded management, like, look around you. Like, look at your management team. We need to bring in some diversity of thought here. Yeah, Come on. yeah. 
Um, do you see that that just sort of naturally is bleeding into your companies, or do in you terms pro- of um, my my sphere of influence, companies uh, that you're on the board of? It's a good question. I don't know uh, where my impact is naturally bleeding to sort of how they think and approach diversity. I haven't reflected on that. Um, I don't know. It's a good question. Well, we do need to remind them occasionally, and it just says we need to remind ourselves. Yeah. Right? It's something that's uh, it's important to address. I'll take the next student's question. If you could travel back in time, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Yeah, so um, I'd say um, those are a few things. We'll Buy Cisco. Buy Cisco. <laughs> Dump all your money into Oculus. Um, so I would, I'd probably say those are a few things. You know, definitely, I think, just be careful who you kind of um, have in your friend circle, both professionally and personally. You know, there it's, it's easy um, as you're kind of just developing as an individual to sometimes have those, you know, those bad influences in your life yep. that you think, oh, it's just like, it's just a friend and um, it's no big deal. But um, sometimes um, you, you can be bucketed by who you associate with. So I'd say... Um, um, making sure you associate, and I and not like I associate with all these bad guys right there, but like associating, making sure like you just kind of associate with um with good people, um and because um, you only have so many cycles of regards to relationships you can manage, um especially now like I have a one year old, like I only have like very minimal cycles, right. um and then um and I feel like I, I did follow this, but just following your passions, um so don't just live your life for what drives you versus what you think someone will believes is like good for your life because that day it's 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 your life uh, and some people feel like there's this this path that you, you have to follow and these steps that you need to take in order to achieve this one goal but if you asked me when uh, you know I was a you know in college I would have been the head of marketing for a women's fashion company I'd be like no way um, so you, you just never know kind of what um, you know how um, life will kind of um, play itself out. Yeah, and we, we emphasize that in here, um, to really be proactive in curating your peer group. Don't just let it happen. I mean, it's, you know, it's the, your peers are the ones that are going to influence you, whether you like it or not or whether you're aware of it or not. Totally. And your peers are going to be who you're going to start companies with, who you're going to invest in or invest in you. I mean, that's, that's you know, people you're going to date, fall in love with, all of that. Yeah. So, be, so be very proactive <clears throat> managing that peer group. I'm going to ask you, because you're in a really unique position. You've worked East Coast, West Coast, and you've worked Northern California, boo, Southern <laughs> California, yay. <laughs> you, you, you've worked really some interesting dynamics yep. here. So you understand North, North, Northern and Southern California, but you also understand East, West Coast, West Coast. What For students that might be thinking about going to New York or even Chicago or someplace outside of California, sure. Did you notice some real differences in the way business was conducted on, on the coast? And then I'd love to hear your thoughts on... From a venture perspective, you mean? Just business in general, venture, venture specifically? I'd say um, the only difference I could probably feel like I, um, I noticed was in the Bay Area where and it, was, it, was, it was amazing to actually be a part of it where from the entrepreneurs to the investors, like there was everyone like truly felt there was no limits in terms of what they could accomplish. Right. And I feel like in other parts of the, the country, people kind of felt that way. But like when you see like a like a an eighteen year old, like our nineteen year olds are like college dropout that's like, I'm gonna create like, you know, the next Facebook and 
you look in their eyes and like they're dead serious and they're, they're like I'm going to do it and like the, the and, and maybe they will maybe they won't but like um, there was just this, um, this this passion to build something amazing yep um, belief. At, a belief. A, a belief at a level that um, you know it was um, it was it's pretty you know it's pretty infectious around the whole community yeah um, but at the same time there's also with that you know there's to a certain degree like you can see uh, within sort of certain individuals that kind of came out as arrogance. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's yep. why I think some some folks uh, give um, Silicon Valley a bad rap, which um, I think sort of unmerited because, you know, there are sort of, you know, a few bad apples that um, that kind of, you know, s- spoil um, people's perception. Unfortunately, they tend to make the news. And- yeah, exactly. But um, there's, a, there's a lot of amazing things being um, being built in, uh, in Silicon Valley. Um, but you're starting to see that same, um, that same trend, those, that same sort of, Attitude, passion, hunger, and vision um, here in LA, in Southern California, which um, is partly why you know, I was excited to you know make the transition down because yep. um, you're feeling sort of that same culture, but at the same time, which excites me is a um, is a balance around sort of you know both work and life. Yep. Um, but I think too, what I think actually is really valuable for me in my field, which I don't know if. Um, you know, some people, at least living in Southern California, reflect on is that part, so much of what Los Angeles has to offer in terms of would be Hollywood, media, fashion um, has huge impacts on the rest of the world mm-hmm. and the rest of the world in terms of sort of overall kind of consumer taste trends and all of the above. And you know, leaving the office and being able to have all that sort of consume me and right. be around me right. that actually gives me what I feel like um, a, a more sort of almost uh, pulse. On a lot of what sort of you know could be you know of tomorrow, um, and what could be driving overall sort of um, consumer technology, consumer apps, mm-hmm. or even the overall consumerization of sort of you know, the enterprise. Uh, and I, I, I think that um, aspect of Southern California is um, an advantage that it has over yeah. um, the still somewhat bubble that is Northern California because you're it is kind of its own isolated sort of ecosystem. But it's also it's like an ecosystem of still a lot of innovation. Yep. Well, it's a core competency. I mean, even little old Santa Barbara has some core competencies where because of companies that we had here that were successful, yes. they spun out certain um, people that had certain skills, and then we've been able to build upon that. Yes. Certainly that's something that LA has uh, in, in droves. You mentioned um, the wide-eyed sort of sense of wonderment and belief of entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley. What else do you look for? I mean, we've got a lot of young entrepreneurs in this audience and, and, and people um, watching this on their computers. So I'm sitting down with you. I'm sitting down with Kobe Fuller. I got one shot. What are you looking for? Either you want to see or you don't want to see. Yeah. For me, well, one, you're a good person. <laughs> uh, I just generally, no matter how wonderful the idea, how talented entrepreneur, if you're not a good person, I frankly, life's too short. Agreed. Um, so um, that's step number one. Um, two is like a, a product and a market that actually kind of makes sense yep. and a market that's big enough. Uh, you know, it's, it's tough, I think, to get really excited about sort of niche categories. Um, so that's more kind of a check the box. But I think number three is an entrepreneur is, is very passionate um, and um, qualified in some way. They may not have actually been a successful entrepreneur before, but there's something unique about their abilities that gives them sort of the... Um, the actual sort of permission to actually do this. And I'm so glad you came by here. This is fantastic.
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.